You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Uh, we're going to be skipping around a bunch. Um, we've got, uh, we're starting in, switch to chapter 12, 1 through 6, and then the, the last part of 12, starting in verse 42. <clears throat> It'll also say there are a lot of names per usual, so bear with us. All right, so this is God's word. Nehemiah 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who were willing to, willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived in his own property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amarish, the son of Shepatiah, the son of Amalel, the sons of Perez, and Maaseah, the son of Barak, the son of Kohoza, the son of Haziah, the son of Adoniah, the sons of Jorab, the sons of Zechariah, the sons of, sons of the Shilonite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Okay, now skipping over to chapter 12. Of course, my, there we go. Verse 1. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son, the son of Shelatiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amarish, Malak, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rahum, Mermont, Edu, Ganethoi, Abijah, Mirman, Medish, Bilga, Shemaiah, Dorob, Jadish, Shula, Amirik, Hilka, uh, and then I can't remember how. And now skipping to the end of that chapter, starting at the second half of verse 42. And the singers sang with Jezreel as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms and the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes, to gather in, into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the ser- service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the comment of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of singing, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron." This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Lewis. And if you feel gypped uh, that we didn't finish any of the chapters there, Lewis actually has been studying these. He said he'd be willing to come by and just read the rest of it for you this week at some point. So just set up a time and he'd be happy to uh, finish those sections. Um, if you are uh, joining us as a guest, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Welcome to New City. Um, one thing you can do to connect further, just stop at our little table on the way back out because uh, we would like to connect with you. And as well as on my mind, I just don't want to forget to mention this. Uh, this is for kind of two groups of people in the room. One, Thanksgiving is coming this week. If you don't have a uh, seat at a table somewhere around here, email will at newcityfellowship.net. And then if you have a seat at the table and uh, you know, you, you, you'd like to welcome someone who doesn't, uh, you can also email me and just let me know that you're available. We've done this every year and we just want to make sure that you've got a place to uh, join and uh, enjoy some, some turkey and all of the other festivities this week. So make sure you let us know with that. Uh, with that, we are working our way through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we're kind of lumping this last section together and looking at a few key areas of it. And the next week is actually going to be our last week in the book of Nehemiah as we get ready for Advent uh, after that. So uh, let me just invite all of us to pray together now as we get ready to consider uh, this, this, uh, these couple chapters together. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to pray over your people how uh, Paul prayed over the church in Colossae. Lord, I pray this morning that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There are aspects in this passage and really all of your word that we'll never rightly understand on our own. The separation between you and us is too great. Uh, but like we've already mentioned this morning, you've condescended and drawn near to us that we might know you. So by your spirit, would you give us uh, the knowledge of your will from your word so that all of us might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Lord, help us to know you better this morning. Uh, help us to know more clearly what your will for us is in all of the specific places of our life. And let your word meet us um, in places where you desire there to be more fruit of obedience, more places of surrender, uh, more, more places of following Jesus more closely. Would you help us to know more deeply your will uh, we pray. I pray this over your people. And I, I just want to pray, especially this morning, for people in this room that are at a, at a distance from you right now. They're maybe seeking and searching and trying to discern what it is that, that we believe as followers of Jesus. I pray that you would make the good news of your son just really clear and really compelling this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. The most compelling sports story in the history of the city of Manassas, okay? Can I ask by virtue of show of hands, were there any of you that lived in Manassas in the early 2000s? Is there anyone who was here back in those days? Okay, let me share with you how it unfolded. I'm sitting in Metz Middle School in eighth grade, getting ready to cross over to Osborne High School, which is right behind us, and there's this big exciting announcement. A change of hands with the Osborne football team, there's going to be a new coach. Uh, and he was there talking to the rising eighth graders saying, hey, this, this summer, get in the weight room. We want to see if you can join our team. And, and uh, he needed to give like sp uh, special recruitment because at that time, Osborne High School's football team was an absolute dumpster fire, a complete wreck. They made the Washington football team look like a professional football team. They, they, they made them look that way. They, they were terrible. 
um, not only were they having poor seasons, at that time, they were 0-28, which means it had been years since they won a football game. It was the laughing stock of the region. The football team was terrible. But Coach Schultz stepped in, promising new leadership, a new direction, a new vision. And so uh, many people bought on a little bit, but were still skeptical until uh, the fall of, I think it would have been 2002 or 2003, something absolutely unthinkable happened. Osborne, the Osborne Eagles went on to win a football game. Uh, there was that rumors that this was discussed on ESPN, given the long losing record, uh, and they even went on that season to go two and eight. So this is shocking. For years without a win, they finally get one. Uh, the next year, uh, it was something like four and six. Uh, the following year, three and seven. And then in 2006, the year I was supposed to graduate, but that's another story for another day. Uh, in 2006, the Osborne Eagles, under the leadership of Coach Schultz, went 14-0 and all the way to be state champions of our division that year. And to prove it, when you leave this morning, you take a look at our water tower just to my right. Uh, all of the other sports teams were so jealous because there's other sports teams that have won things, tennis and things like that. They never got that kind of publicity stamped in bold letters on our um, on our water tower are Osborne Eagles football state champions uh, 2006. Uh, Coach Schultz promised that he gave to me as an eighth grade to win the state. He was able to turn this disaster of a football team into one that went on to win the state championship, which I tell that story simply to make this, this point this morning. Um, how significantly things can turn around uh, under good leadership. Uh, you know, it's like that, that quote, if you've read any of John Maxwell's stuff, he's like the leadership guru of our generation. He says, everything rises and falls on leadership. Well, in, in that example, there, there was a tremendous uh, uh, expression of things turning around in the context of good leaders. Now, as we talk about leadership, here's the challenge. For, for every one good example of leadership, all of us could probably list 10 examples of terrible leadership. So maybe your workplace is a misery right now because it's just very poorly managed. You are under terrible leadership. Uh, we often hear very publicly of church leaders who fail and the sorts of consequences uh, that, that fall through that. Uh, um, we, we could even think on a political level, those who just make very poor decisions and uh, create a lot of chaos and problems for the people in society uh, on a level of political leadership. It may lead us to think as it comes to leadership, already, especially because like culturally, we're a very anti-authoritarian culture. We just naturally question authority. And with all of the bad examples of leadership, it could lead us to say, hey, just forget about leadership altogether. Let's sort of pilot our own ships. Let's chart our own courses. You know, if we need a boss, that's fine. But don't really put much emphasis on leadership at all, given all of the bad experiences that we have with it. Uh, but in Nehemiah chapter 12, uh, you know, as, as Lewis just read, there's something reminiscent of the experience of the, the 2006 Osborne High School experience happening. There, there are people in, in Nehemiah 12, it says, rejoicing with a great, uh, far away from Jerusalem. People could hear the songs and the shouts of joy that was happening in, uh, in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. And what's interesting about that expression of joy is that the broader context of what's happening here 
are a description of different types of leaders. In fact, some have argued that the entire book of Nehemiah is a manual on good leadership. There's a lot of other things going on there, but certainly we've seen to this point under Nehemiah's leadership some some really good things have happened, which just all of that boils down to this simple point that I want to get across to us this morning. The simple point is this. God's people need godly leaders. God's people, regardless of our negative leadership experiences, God's people need godly leaders. And as we see in these couple chapters, when they have godly leaders, they thrive as a community, as a people. And so I want us to consider this passage and invite perhaps even some of us to consider how the Lord might be inviting you to rise to the occasion and lead so that we as a community can continue to thrive. And as we look at godly leadership, there's really sort of three expressions of leadership in this passage. The first one we read I'll just call community leaders. That's, that's the first group of leaders that I want to look at. These are leaders who just sort of lead in general in Jerusalem. Uh, the second kind of leaders I want to look at are those who led in song, worship leaders uh, in this passage. And then finally, I want to consider with you the, the leadership of priests, our great need for priestly leadership as God's uh, people together. And so let's begin Turn on back to uh, chapter 11. We're going to look at this first area of leaders in Nehemiah's day. Uh, Just community leaders or leaders in general. What we see happening here in these first John, we're kind of randomly selecting a group of people uh, to go into Jerusalem to lead. Uh, But then it also says right here in verse 2 that the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And of course, the broad heading for this section is the leaders in Jerusalem, if your Bible has a heading there. So here's people who are willingly going forward to lead in Jerusalem. I want to consider the motivations that they have in leading, uh, because maybe all of us at different points will have an opportunity to lead something. The, The motivation that drives us naturally as human beings to lead is usually self-oriented. So maybe at work, there's a better leadership position that you could take, and it comes with uh, perks like higher salary, uh, you you know, greater benefits, those kinds of things. Maybe uh, there's a leadership position available for you that puts you in the spotlight a little bit. Uh, You're able to influence people. You're able to get attention. Plainly spoken, oftentimes when we as people are drawn to a leadership position, it is because of either power or perks. But the people in this passage who are signing up to lead are not doing it for power or perks. They're doing it in the midst of problems. Problems. Why uh, are they casting lots, and why are people having to volunteer to willingly live in Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem in those days uh, was not exactly prime leadership. Here's where they were so far. 70 years previously, the whole place had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, They've started to rebuild, but this is all they have at the moment, a nice wall around the city. It says back in chapter 7 that though the city was wide and large, none of the houses had been rebuilt yet. So to go back into Jerusalem, uh, what was not to go back to get like, you know, a great house, you know, some's everywhere. And what Nehemiah is highlighting here are people who willingly said, hey, I'm not going to Jerusalem for power or for perks. I'm going to solve problems. 
That's the kind of leader that I want to be. And then it, I love how they're described here in verse 6, these, these community leaders. It says, all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were men. 468 and 68 valiant men. Valiant men. 468 of them. What does valiant mean? Well, it can mean kind of in modern language like courageous uh, or, or um, you know, they have a degree of valor, bravery that, that drew them to go to Jerusalem. But e- even perhaps a clearer translation of the word used there could, could perhaps be put like this. Uh, the, the men who went to live in Jerusalem were men of substance, men of character, uh, men of weight, men of gravity. And all of us, men and women alike, need to, to learn from this example here where leadership or influence for us is not something that's measured by uh, followers or likes or popularity or perks. Leadership is measured in the Bible by those who uh, don't see a great situation and try to, uh, you know, go sit in the middle of it, but those who see a problem and say, sign me up, I'll head into that. Uh, sign me up. I'm willing to go, not to get anything for myself, but I'm simply willing to go and help rebuild. And another remarkable thing about these guys who go into Jerusalem to live there is that this is not even for themselves. As you know, there passage, many of them had land and, and farms and other places throughout Israel. They are voluntarily going to a place where they don't even live uh, to build something that will be a blessing to other people and future generations. Simple point. Um, uh, God is looking for people who are not looking for perks or opportunities for a spotlight uh, or any of that. God is looking for people who see a mess in this world and are saying, here I am, send me, I'll lead in the middle of that. It reminds me of a story I heard coming out of Louisiana. Maybe some of you saw it on social media or something like that. Uh, At a high school, dads on duty. Did anyone see this group of men? Brilliant. We needed this at every high school. Here's what was going on. In this school in Louisiana, there was a just epidemic of fights. They were breaking out left and right. And so where students should have been engaged, learning, preparing for their future, they could barely even focus in class uh, because so many were getting sus. Dads said, man, this is a, this right here, this is walk that dads can solve. They signed up to simply go to the school, walk around the hallways, talk to, encourage the kids, challenge them, probably tell some brilliant dad jokes. Uh, and, and they would, would even be on shifts where, where they would, you know, find time to step away from work or whatever to be present, not in a situation where they get a lot of perks and, and privileges, but a situation where there's a mess. And they said, hey, sign me up. I will go and lead in the middle of that. That's the, that's the kind of leader we see being demonstrated here. People who see problems, things that are broken, things that are not working the way that they're supposed to, and saying, hey, sign me up. I will fill in the gap there. And so let me just consider for, for the different places in this room where God may be inviting us to lead in that. For those of you in your home, are there any places where God is calling you in the midst of a mess to stand up and lead? Maybe it's in the midst of the mess of conflict where you just need to stand up and lead by being the person who moves towards reconciliation. Maybe in home it's in a mess of just a, a, a low to no spiritual pulse in your home. And God is calling on dads, fathers, husbands to rise to the occasion, open a Bible, read it, and pray with your family. 
Maybe leadership in your home in the midst of a mess are, are moms who are regularly thinking about meals and thinking about those in neighborhoods or in the church uh, who don't have a seat at the table that are finding ways to open up their home and, and express hospitality in the midst of the mess that people experience in loneliness. Maybe in our community, there's an invitation for some of you to lead. I think the way of our youth team, how they've stepped up, heard of challenges, problems that are experienced by a lot of kids in this community, and so are now volunteering on a Wednesday night. I won't say without any perks, they get Chick-fil-A and pizza, so granted, our youth team gets a couple benefits out of it, are not doing it for personal gain. They're doing it because they see a need in the community and are saying, I want to move towards that problem and, and respond to it like the people did in this passage. Maybe there are other areas where people are thinking of uh, the lonely in nursing homes and how uh, care could be expressed there. Or those who are incarcerated that need uh, someone to open up the Bible and explain it to them. Or simply, as we mentioned at the beginning this morning, recognizing there may be some who don't have a table to sit at at Thanksgiving. How can I respond in the midst of those challenges, those problems? Uh, man, a final area for us to consider are the messes and the problems that we experience in the church. You know, one thing we are just putting a lot of thought into, we had a member meeting discussing a lot about this, is sort of when we are not here on Sunday morning, what does it mean to be a part of New City uh, in the week, you know, Saturday through Monday? What does it mean for us to be a part of this church with our community life as we are growing as disciples? And we can spout some awesome ideas about the kind of church we want to be in the way we relate to one another, in the way we grow together. But if there are not people rising to the occasion saying, hey, yeah, community life and discipleship is a challenge, somebody fix it. No, what we need is somebody to say, community life and discipleship is a challenge. Sign me up to lead. How can I help? How can I respond to that? We need people here on Sunday morning that are not waiting on being called on to serve in some capacity, but simply come to leaders, come to our kids director, come to our setup director, uh, the various volunteer teams that we have, simply saying, hey, how can I help? How can I serve here? I invite many in this room to pray and consider, would the Lord have you serve in some way as a deacon? Perhaps one day as an elder in this church, uh, not because it would be a great opportunity to have some influence and to get some privileges out of it, but simply to step towards problems, challenges, and messes, community. Those, like it says, of these sons of Perez who are valiant people, people of substance, character, people of gravity that don't run away from problems but move towards them with redemptive solutions. Those are the first kinds of leaders that are needed in God's community. Community leaders, leaders that lead in general. Let's consider concerning worship leaders. Now, let me specify here, it's helpful to, to get a little more specific. We, we describe, you know, the time of worship or worship leaders in the church as though when we sing, that's when we worship, and then everything else is like something else. And it's helpful for us to recognize everything we do here on Sunday morning, whether you're serving in nursery, giving, praying, moving chairs, singing, all of it is under this category of worship. So it's sometimes unhelpful to just specify worship leaders as the ones who are leading in worship, because it's happening all over the place. But given the just common language that we use of worship leaders, that's just the, the term that I'll use to describe what we see happening here. Uh, and what we see really being given a great deal of emphasis in these couple chapters are those who are leading in worship. And uh, let me just read a couple examples of it. So first of all, uh, chapter 12, verse 42 through 43, let me read that one. Uh, 
at the end here, second half of 42, and the singers sang uh, with Jezariah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with a great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So here are people leading in song and the community responding with great joy as a result. Another one over in verse 46 of chapter 12. Uh, For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So some special mention to our worship leaders in this passage, which some of us might find interesting that I just described Jerusalem as a place where there's not even houses to live in. Like the city is in shambles, and yet the people who are getting a special spotlight here, if that seems odd to us, it would only be because of one of two reasons. We underestimate the importance of worship in general, not just worship and song, but if this community is going to be rebuilt in the way that God would have them uh, live and function, worship has to be the absolute bedrock that everything else is built on. We discussed a lot of that last week. But another reason this might seem odd that such special attention is given to the song leaders is perhaps because you and I uh, have way too low of an understanding of the significance that songs play in our lives as a people. Do you ever pause and think about how important song, singing, music is for us as human beings? Uh, It is so important that it led the thinker Andrew Fletcher to say, let me make the songs of a nation and I care not who makes the laws. Songs, the, the, the poems that we write as a community, have a massive importance in shaping us as a people. And I want to focus on two particular areas that singing uh, plays in our lives uh, as God's people. So uh, what, what do songs do? Why are these worship leaders so important? Well, one thing that songs do is that they allow us to express Okay, now just walk with me for a second. If you're not a very expressive or emotional person, that's okay. Uh, Simply put, we need to recognize that human beings are expressive creatures. We don't just go through things and, you know, uh, don't reflect on them at all. When we have profound experiences in our lives, there is something in us that, that expresses them, and we can actually become very unhealthy if we are not taking the things that are happening in our lives and finding opportunities to express them. So here the people are. They have gone through a profound experience. Previously, they were living as exiles, as refugees in, uh, in, in Syria or in, in uh, um, Persia, uh, and, and they've just been brought back. And miraculously, the thing that they needed to rebuild their lives was a wall. God provides for them in miraculous timing the opportunity for them to rebuild this wall. So they've gone safety of this wall around them, and they can't just move past that as though nothing had happened. In order to complete that experience, they need an opportunity to express the joy uh, of what's just happened. And so that's why it says that there was a great joy, uh, and the women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So we need songs to express the the joyful moments in our life, but we also need songs uh, to help us express the very painful moments we have in our lives. 
Like I know for many of you, maybe now, especially when you were a teenager, maybe you were going through a very hard time, many of you made it through very difficult times as a teenager listening to some emo or some heavy metal or whatever you were into that gave some measure of expression for the pain that you were experiencing in your life. The, the Bible actually has a, a term for this. It would call it songs of lament. Songs where we take the grief that we're going through in our lives and we express it to God in song. What we need as God's people are both songs that help articulate the joy that we have. Songs like joy to the world, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Uh, but we also need songs like, for example, it is well with my soul. Uh, where the writer describes the experience of losing his whole family uh, on a uh, boat trip uh, from the U.S. back to Europe. And he says in the midst of it, when sorrows like sea billows roll, we need songs that express our joy. Uh, we need songs that, that express our, our grief and our pain in life. Uh, one one uh, thinker, I don't, I don't know who actually came up with this quote, but I think it's very helpful to summarize the importance of songs and expression. He says, songs are for those profound experiences for which there are no words. Profound experiences that we just can't summarize with a sentence uh, but about which we can't keep silent. Songs give voice to some of the things that are happening in the inner places of our life. So there's an important role for songs in expression. I also want us to talk about the important song, songs play in education. In education. Do you have any idea how powerful songs are in teaching us and shaping us? How did any of you learn, learn the ABCs? I'm sure it was not through flashcards or a list. Uh, you, you learn the ABCs uh, through uh, song, through, through singing it. Uh, my, I don't know if my kids could still do it. There was a time where they could read, they could tell you from memory, every book of the Bible. I could not do that right now. If you just told me from memory, I would miss some for sure. Um, but my kids could do it. Why? Because they had opened to the table of contents and just found great joy in turning the TV off and memorizing the books of the Bible. No, there was a catchy song that taught them uh, the books of the Bible. It, 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 it informed their mind. It filled their mind through song. Okay, let me just run this little experiment, and I'm going to need a little bit of responsiveness with this. It will, would help a lot. I will give someone all the money in my wallet, which at the very least, we'll get you something off the dollar menu at, a, at your fast food. I will give someone all the money in my wallet. If you can just tell me within like, I don't know, five, 10 seconds, what did I preach about three weeks ago? Nehemiah's not, no, you got to be more specific than Nehemiah, which was about what? Okay. How about last week was about what? One week ago. Was anybody know? I, so a couple people, two people in the room were able to remember what I preached. Now I remind you, like I spent hours. Uh, per, okay, now let's walk through this experience. Fill in the blank for me. Good. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Very good. Here's one from, from the 90s. Let's uh, reveal who's been walking with Jesus for a while. Our God is an awesome God. He... Beautiful, very good. How about this one? You are my fire, my one desire. Believe when I say. Oh, they're even singing it. Yes. 
So that's not a worship song. That's the Backstreet Boys, if you were wondering, okay? Um, but, but do you see how powerfully songs shape our mind? Like many of you have, have learned theology through, through songs. And I'm not downplaying, we need to preach. Like maybe that's what you should do. We'll just sing more songs and we don't even worry about this time. No, preaching is critically important. But I, I don't know that many of us realize how powerfully songs can train us, educate us, form us. It's why in Colossians, Paul says uh, that we are to dress, address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're to teach one another uh, with these because they powerfully shape our minds. So just the simple application for us here, recognizing uh, the importance of songs in God's people is this. You should sing. And I'll even go so far as to say you should sing loudly and make a joyful noise to the Lord. It doesn't have to be a beautiful noise, just a joyful one. You should sing. Songs allow you to give expression to what's going on. Songs uh, allow you to form and learn and, and shape your mind. That's why it's so important that we sing together. And none of you should buy into the lie that singing, well, maybe that's for the women or that's for people who are really emotional. No, the, the manliest man in the Bible, David, who killed bears and lions, uh, wrote a songbook. He, he was a musician. He was a musician. And I'll just say this especially, if you are here and you are in a place of like seeking, you're trying to determine what you believe about Jesus, man, I would say for myself when I was in that season, first of all, the times of singing seemed very weird to me. I understand that. Like when I, when I kind of stepped into a setting like this and everybody was singing, I didn't know what to do with it. But as God began to work in my life, I would go so far as to say that the songs that I sang during that season were the very instrument that God used to save me. Like, you know, sometimes people will, hey, pray this prayer, and that's how you're going to kind of uh, put your faith in Jesus. Uh, that's fine too, but in Romans, it simply says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We will be given a new life. We will be given are the very, that's all. And if sung from your heart, that could save your soul eternally. So don't ever downplay the significance of singing. Don't ever downplay the significance of singing. Let's finally look at one other area. We've uh, considered together so far that, that God's people need godly leaders to thrive. We need leaders. And, and we've looked at uh, just leaders in general in the community. We've looked specifically at worship leaders. I finally want to consider leaders as priests. So if you look back, we read this section uh, with a bunch of names. I'll simply read verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1 again. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. Uh, so as they come back from exile, there is this special importance that is given to priests. And what I want to communicate to us this morning concerning priests is this. This is perhaps the most vital leadership role in the church. We desperately need priestly leadership. So much so, if we do not have a priest, you and I can't even have a relationship with God at all. We desperately need priestly leadership. Let me look just broadly. It doesn't describe it in this passage. It's just got a bunch of names. But what did they do? What was the role of priests? Broadly speaking, the role of a priest was to stand in the gap between sinful, flawed, impure people and a perfect, 
holy God, to be an intermediary between those two groups and to carry out a couple key functions. Let me just mention a couple of them. What did priests do? The first thing that they had to do, especially given the sins of Israel, is they had to offer sacrifices. So we've read in previous weeks of all kinds of different sacrifices that are taking place amongst the people of Israel. Uh, The most important one would be called the sin or the guilt offering. This is what would happen when the people of Israel would break God's law, would in a significant mercy set up a system with the priests and with sacrifices where he could essentially say, you have sinned and because of your sin, you deserve death. You step to the side and an animal is going to be put to death in your place. Uh, and, and there was a, a really big moment that this happened every year. It was called the Day of, of Atonement. Uh, uh, you know, maybe you've heard of Yom Kippur. That's what's meaning there. It's the one time in the year when not just a priest, but the high priest, like the senior guy, would go into the very presence of God uh, and uh, confess the, uh, he would go into the presence of God, bringing the blood of an animal to cover the sins of the people. And then he would come back outside and they would grab a goat and he would put his hands on the head of the goat and he would, put the, he would speak the sin sins of the people of Israel over that goat, and then that goat would be sent out into the wilderness. What did those two things symbolize? One, it symbolized that God, uh, his judgment against our sin had been carried out on that animal, and that goat going out to the wilderness was a way of symbolizing your sins have been removed from you. They're no longer accounted to you. Uh, one, uh, One psalm would put it like this, as far as the east is from the west, That's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. The theological word there is expiation, the removal of our guilt for our sins. So in order for us to find forgiveness, uh, many of us carry, uh, I know I'm talking like Old Testament sacrifices, but just more specifically for you, many of you carry deep shame and guilt for things you've done in your life. Many of you carry deep shame and guilt for things that you've even done this week. You have a hard time singing uh, because of the guilt you felt. What the priest would do is take that away. There is no more guilt. There is nothing else to be charged for you for your sin. Your sin has been taken away from you. So that's one thing that they would do. They would offer sacrifices. One more critical thing that the priests would do would be to bring the people near to God. They would bring the people near to God. Once again, the people were flawed, sinful, imperfect. God is imperfect, can't even stand to look at sin. And so the priests would have this of an insider. I could maybe describe it to you like this. It's the best illustration I could come up with. I'm already thinking sports, so here it is. Many of you know, big Dallas Cowboys fan, whatever, give me your grief later, that's fine. Um, I, I would love the opportunity to sit in the owner's suite of that stadium and watch a game. That would be like a, you know, just the perfect day to experience that. The problem right now is if I try to go do that, I will end up in jail if I try to sit in that suite. But if I knew somebody that was an insider, somebody that had a special connection to the owner of that team, perhaps they could put a word in for me and, and, and get me on the inside. In a sense, what the priests do is they play an insider role. They are able to bring people who are sinful and imperfect into the presence of God, and they even uh, pray and intercede for them. So many of the priests in the Old Testament, they'd have this kind of breastplate that they would wear, and there would be 12 stones on them, each of the stones representing one of the tribes of Israel. So they would simply go into God's presence and pray for the people. The people didn't have access right into God's presence. They were flawed and sinful. Uh, They would be destroyed if they went into God's presence, but the priest would go in for them. So we could talk about more. Those are two key things that priests would do. Offer sacrifices and bring the people near God. Point being, 
because of our sin, uh, because of God's perfection, we cannot have a relationship with God without a priest, without a mediator, without someone who stands between us and him. So it leads us to our church. Like, how does that work then? Like, am I your priest? Like, uh, well, you know, I'm not nearly godly enough to do that. Uh, is Joe Cooper your priest? It's like that book, like, are you my mother? Like, uh, we need a priest. Like, are you my priest? Are you my priest? You know, uh, where, where, I'm talking about the importance of a priest. Where is our priest? Who is going to fulfill that role for us? Would you turn with me, just in closing, to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Get this. Since then, we have a great high priest. Praise God, we don't have to wander around looking for one. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but what do we get to do as a result of this priest we have? Verse 16 This is the best news in the world. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. New City, I ain't your priest. Joe isn't. Brian isn't. Man, your priest came and lived a perfect life for you. Uh, Unlike the other priests, uh, he did not offer a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. Jesus gave up his life to cover your sins so that we can say, like I said a second ago, because a sacrifice has been given, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And the result of now having our sins removed from us is that we get to do uh, the very thing that the Old Testament priests would do, but in an even more powerful way. We get to draw near to God. We get to draw near to God and find help in our time of need. That's what the high priests would do. They would go and plead for help over Israel. We get to go our very selves with the needs, the problems, the challenges we face in our life and draw near to God with them. And if we don't know what to pray, we're not sure exactly how to pray in that moment, man, even better news. It says in 1 Timothy, I believe, that there uh, is a mediator right now making intercession for us. Jesus himself is praying for you, praying that your faith would not fail, praying that you continue to persevere, praying for the needs in your life that you can't even see. Jesus stands in the gap right now, lifting up your deepest needs before the throne of God. So as we come this morning to celebrate communion, it is a profound meal. Make no mistake about it. I don't know if you have a Catholic background. We are not offering a sacrifice here. A sacrifice has already been given for sins once and for all. That happened 2,000 years ago. We are coming forward to celebrate the sacrifice that is able to sympathize with us. He became like us. He became one of us, and he gave his human body over for you. And we celebrate through the cup that all of your sins have been blotted out. If they were written in a book, they have been completely erased. There is a clean slate because Jesus, the Son of God, offered the perfect sacrifice for you. So if you have put your faith in Jesus, come forward and participate in this communion meal. If you're in this room and you're not at a place where you'd say you've put your faith in him, uh, that that you're walking with God and uh, trusting in the finished sacrifice of Jesus, I want to invite you to remain in your seat as we do believe that this communion meal 
is a symbol for those who have, who have trusted in Christ. What I just want you to ponder during this time is this, maybe this broad question. Why? Why should you believe in Jesus? We as a church, one of the main reasons we exist is to see more people put their faith in Jesus. Why should you do that? Because he is the only one, he's the only one who can give you what you most need, a relationship with God. There is no other mediator, there is no other priest, there is no one else who can give you a relationship with God. It is only Jesus who can do that. He is the only one who can take away your guilt, all of the things that you've done wrong, maybe even things you've forgotten about long ago. God still sees them, he knows about them. It is only Jesus who can take away the guilt for your sin, and it is only Jesus that can give you true and abundant life. So perhaps remain in your seat and ponder that question. Why should you believe in Jesus? Maybe you can think about that as the skeptic come forward. Let's do what the people did in this passage in response. Let us rejoice with a great joy. Women and children alike, let us uh, rejoice and let the joy of New City Fellowship perhaps even be heard from far away. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Um, you are our great high priest that has offered one, a perfect life. Any sacrifice would have to be without blemish. Jesus, you have not even a single blemish of sin or impurity about you. And that perfect sacrifice you took to the cross to be the place where our redemption, our forgiveness, uh, the canceling of our guilt, the removing of the penalty of God's wrath, all of that took place as you offered the perfect sacrifice. You went down into the grave, rose on the third day, and ascended in the heavenly places. And God, how we praise you that right now you're not just sitting there waiting for this whole thing to wrap up. You are making intercession for your people right now. Just like the high priests would have uh, the tribes of Israel on their heart, expressing them uh, the needs of the people before God, you hold us in our heart, in your heart right now. You are interceding for the people in this room uh, as, as we wait until we one day stand before you guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray now that as we take this meal and as we sing these songs, you would use these songs to articulate uh, your great worth, our great need, and what you have done to fill that need. Lord, we love you. Would you continue to meet us now? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.